This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, April 6th. I'm Doug Blair. And I'm Virginia Allen. Not long ago, Venezuela was a prosperous country. But today, residents of Venezuela struggle to have enough to even survive. Jorge Galicia was born and raised in Venezuela, and he joins the show today to explain how socialist policies destroyed his nation. He also explains why it is detrimental to the people of Venezuela if the Biden administration purchases oil from the Maduro regime. But before we get to Virginia's conversation with Jorge Galicia, let's hit our top news stories of the day. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky delivered a passionate speech before the United Nations on Tuesday. Zelensky called on the U.N. to remove Russia from the Security Council in light of evidence that Russia has executed Ukrainian civilians and committed other violent crimes against the Ukrainian people. Zelensky said he sees two options, either remove Russia from the Security Council or dissolve it altogether, per Yahoo Finance. You can do two things, either remove Russia as an aggressor and a source of war so it cannot block decisions about its own aggression, its own war, and then do everything that we can do uh, to establish peace. Or the other option is, please show how we can uh, re- reform or change, uh, dissolve yourself and, uh, and, uh, and work for peace. Or if there is no alternative and no option, then the next option would be dissolve yourself altogether. Russia is currently one of five permanent members of the Security Council, along with the U.S., United Kingdom, France and China. Council members have veto power, which Zelensky argues Russia should not have given its actions in Ukraine. Zelensky said in his speech that Russia is turning the veto in the U.N. Security Council into the right to die. And he added that the veto power undermines the whole architecture of global security and allows Russia to go unpunished. Zelensky detailed some of the gruesome reports of ways Russian soldiers brutally tortured and killed Ukrainians. Zelensky again said the Russian military and its leaders must be brought to justice immediately for war crimes in Ukraine. Following news that Elon Musk had purchased a 9.2 percent stake in Twitter, the company announced Tuesday that it would be offering Musk a seat on its board of directors. In a tweet announcing the decision, Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal said, I'm excited to share that we're appointing Elon Musk to our board. Through conversations with Elon in recent weeks, it became clear to us that he would bring great value to our board. Former CEO Jack Dorsey agreed, tweeting, I'm really happy Elon is joining the Twitter board. He cares deeply about our world and Twitter's role in it. After the announcement, Musk tweeted out a poll asking if users would be interested in an edit button for tweets, a function that many users had requested. Per CNBC, Musk's term on the board will last until 2024. Individuals who live in Palm Springs, California, and identify as transgender or non-binary are eligible to receive up to $900 a month. The program provides universal basic income to any resident who identifies as transgender or non-binary. The details of the program are being designed over a six-month period. 
20 transgender and non-binary Palm Springs residents are the first recipients of the funds and will receive payments over the next 18 months. The program is funded with taxpayer dollars. Those backing the financial program say it's a way to support an often marginalized community, being the transgender community. Former San Diego City Councilman Carl DeMeo is openly critical of the program. He is a Republican and openly gay and says the program is outrageous and discriminatory. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Jorge Galicia as we discuss how socialist policies have led to Venezuela's downfall. If you're tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at heritage.org. Two decades ago, Venezuela was a thriving country. Today, Freedom House ranks it not free, and the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom ranks it 176th, only coming in freer just above North Korea. So the question is, what happened in Venezuela? How did it get to this point? Well, here with us today to answer that question is a Venezuelan refugee and an outreach fellow at the Fund for American Studies, Jorge Galicia. Jorge, thank you so much for being here. No, thank you, Virginia. Thank you for the invitation. It's it's an an honor. So I would love to begin by just asking you to share a little bit of your own background. You actually grew up in Venezuela. What do you remember from living there? What was your childhood like in Venezuela? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I only arrived here to the states like three years ago, so my my almost my entire life I I spent it there in Venezuela, and uh, you know I experienced the whole transition when I when I was a child when I, my childhood in Venezuela was pretty normal, pretty happy to be honest. I I grew up having my you know the latest versions of my favorite video games, a good birthday parties every year when I was a child. Um, you know, I, I I could say I'd had a regular middle class uh, fa- life when I when I was a, a child in Venezuela, but then in the year 2014, probably probably that's that's the year when we saw that this huge transition in, in my life that thing totally changed. Uh, you know, I, we I started to see all a lot of different problems in Venezuela. Uh, like for example, in my house, we stop we stop having wo- constant water supply, uh, scarcity of food. You needed to do like huge lines to get just a piece of bread. Um, you know, electricity started to fail constantly. Internet connection started to fail constantly. Every single aspect of life, of, of of you know, of life of of living in Venezuela started to decline. And you know, I went from being a happy kid of, of a middle class family to being a basically poor, you know, I, at some point I, I even stopped eating as much as I was used to eat because we didn't have enough money to afford uh, a lot of food. And, and even if we had, it, it, the scarcity in Venezuela was that big that it was really hard at some point to get what, what you required, you know. And in the year 2017, I actually stopped eating meat for a long period of time. We substituted it with uh, 
uh, grains and other different th stuff that we could afford. But, you know, meat, all kind of meat was unavailable for me for, for that whole year. So prior to like 2014, you had never experienced hunger or, um, you know, your family, you know, really struggling to make ends meet. No, yeah. Before that year, I honestly, neither me or my family imagined that something like that could ever happen to us because, as I said, we had a pretty decent life. Uh, we had our troubles as everybody else, but but no, no, we, we had a, a good house and, um, yeah, you know, my mom income was uh, pretty good. I was, a, I was a kid, but we never struggled that much until 2014 after this year. This, this is when the crisis actually hit us, uh, you know, because I, I believe even before that year, a lot of people were already suffering. But in our case, this was the year when everything went south. Uh, uh, and yes, I, I went from being a happy middle class boy to, <laughs> to, to, to being poor, basically. So take us back. What was happening in Venezuela at that time in the early, early 2000s as you got into you know, 2012, 13, 14? What was, what was going on in your country? Yeah, well, you know, 2014 for me was the year of the collapse, but, you know, everything, the reason of that was happening you know, decades ago, when Hugo Chavez actually took power, uh, you know, he managed to when he, when he was in power, he managed to confiscate thousands of private industries within Venezuela. He confiscated the industry that provided that used to provide water. He confiscated the industry that used to provide electricity for Venezuelans. Uh, you know, stuff like that he did during all these years years before. So a lot of people actually saw this coming. You know, it was no surprise for a lot of people. Uh, but, well, the consequences of this politics didn't arrive, at least for my family, until 2014. And, uh, you know, I, that's, that's, this is exactly what I've been doing uh, with uh, the Fund for American Studies, uh, with TIFAS. I've been uh, traveling college campuses to uh, give uh, uh, a historical review of and to, to give an answer to that question of how Venezuela became what it is today. How did we go from being one of the richest places on earth, basically, to one of the poorest nowadays and and yeah this is thanks to socialist policies uh, promoted by Hugo Chavez but not only for by Hugo Chavez but because before Hugo Chavez we even had, we even we started to play a little bit with these socialist policies and this is something that the American audience need to also understand because uh, you know a lot of progressive people here say something like no what we want to we want to say uh, to do democratic socialism, we don't want to do the kind of authoritarian socialism Hugo Chavez did. But well, guess what? In Venezuela, at least in '75, that's what this is when the oil industry in Venezuela was nationalized. This is this was our major first step into socialism that we ever gave, and and this was under a, a vibrant democracy. So this was already democratic socialism somehow, and this move already paved the way to what we have today. So. It is not accurate to say that the decline in Venezuela started with Hugo Chavez. It started actually way decades uh, before. Hmm. What were the promises that Chavez and you know the other government officials were making to the Venezuelan people? Well, the main promise I would say was uh, equality for all Venezuelans. You know, he 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 promised that everybody could have exactly the same results in life, which is unnatural, of course. Uh, he, he did, he also, his campaigns were fueled by creating like, 
creating hatred against uh, the rich class, the top one percent. He made believe a lot of Venezuelans to, uh, to, you know, he made them believe that the reason why they were poor was because there was this uh, rich sector of the society that was taking advantage of them. And a lot of people, unfortunately, believe this message. So a lot of they, he created a lot of divisions uh, within the country. So, so yes, you know, he he basically decided to. Um, he he said that by confiscated private properties and private businesses of this top one percent, uh, you know, Venezuelans were somehow going to improve their life. And of course, this was never the case. So as things started to decline. What what were you experiencing on a day to day basis in Venezuela? Were were you f- ever fearful for your own safety? Were your friends fearful? What were the conversations like that you were having with with friends and family in the country as things were declining? Yeah, no, I uh, of course when this happened, I was still a teenager, you know. I uh, but I uh, I me and my family did did see you know where where the country was was heading to. And I was extremely worried, even even despite the fact that I was a teenager, I was uh, so worried about my future. And actually, that's the reason why in the year 2014, when I ex- started to experience all of this chaos around my life and I started to see the decline of my quality life, that's this is the year when I actually decided to step in and, and, and go into, uh, you know, uh, political activism. I joined uh, the student movement of my university. And I also joined um, uh, a political party named uh, Vente Venezuela, which is a, a classical liberal political party, because I knew that the the reason why my life was uh, not doing so good was because of, of, of all of these socialist policies. And uh, I decided to step in and try to fight again for uh, recovering our democracy, recovering our republic, our our freedoms, because uh, Venezuela, even though it wasn't perfect, we used to be to have a much better country right and i wanted that to 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 be the case again uh so but yes because i saw all of these um declines in my lifestyle i decided to step in and this actually brought me also some consequences because as you know we have a dictatorship there maduro does not tolerate really well dissidency and uh, well in the year 2017 i got in trouble uh, with uh, police because of my activism uh, actually, one of my best friends. Uh, I cannot. I don't know. I should. I know. I don't. I cannot say his name for security reasons. But he was uh, captured by police, uh, and and in the middle of the night, they broke into his house they, without a warrant, without any kind of legality or due process, and they took him away. And you know, when this happened, I I I I panicked because he and I were part of the same team, and I knew that if the police knew about his location, they probably knew about mine as well. So I needed to disappear. I went into hiding. I I spent like a long period of time in in hiding at some religious place in Venezuela. Uh, you know, it was a pretty dramatic situation in my life, and 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 this is all, again, this is all thanks to um, all of the consequences that we suffer because of implementing these policies. Do you know what happened to your friend? Oh yeah. Well, after three months, my friend was uh, uh, thankfully, thanks God, released from prison. He spent almost three months in in, in prison, and uh, later, when he was uh, released, he was under probation. He needed to go to court like every eight days to sign uh, some crazy paper. Uh, but then, uh, like I think, two years uh, after those events, he managed to escape the country. He escaped through the border from uh, to Colombia, and now he's living a uh, 
a good life, a good life, I would say, in Uruguay, in South America. So uh, I'm I'm happy for him that he's uh, already, you know, free. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's good to hear that he's safe. So, what was your journey to America? How did you ultimately come to the states, and what was that journey like? I, after, you know, after my friend was uh, released, uh, you know, you have, people need to understand that in this year, 2017, there were millions of people in the streets of Venezuela protesting and demanding freedom. So, you know, f even though I was, of course, persecuted and, 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 and my friend actually confirmed to me when we managed to meet again after these events that the police did ask for my, you know, my name did show up in, in, in the so-called investigations. And uh, but, you know, after he was released, I just decided to resume my my ordinary life in Venezuela because there were some, you know, millions of people doing exactly the same. And I knew I, I was never like a high profile leader or something like that. So uh, the police was never spent a lot of time just looking for one guy when they when there were millions on this millions on the streets of, of Venezuela doing exactly the same. Right. Uh, but I, however, I did decide to stay away from all of the activism because I really didn't want to go through the same all over again. Um, you know, especially because I was worried about my family, especially my mom. She's really overprotective and she, she almost lost her mind during this period of time. But well, thanks to this decision in the year 2018, I managed to finish my law degree in Venezuela. And after that, I applied to participate in a leadership program named uh, Project Arizona, which is a project being held at Arizona State University. Thanks God I was selected to do that. And well, thanks to this, I was able to leave Venezuela and come here. And I was actually supposed to go back to Venezuela, but you know, in the, the year 2019, uh, thanks to the appearance and the assumption of Juan Guaido as, as, as the legitimate president, of Venezuela and uh, you know Venezuela everybody was talking about Venezuela during this year is a little bit similar to what's going on right now with Ukraine and well Venice I, I started to receive also a lot of attention in Arizona uh, media invitations to speak about what's what's going on students groups at ASU wanted to know more so I did I resumed my activism while I was here in the states and I know for a fact that if I return to Venezuela under various these circumstances my life is going to be in danger and I decided to claim asylum is your family still in Venezuela? Half of them are, yeah. My mom is still there, my grandma, my cousins, my dog, my uncle, yeah. Half of them are. Uh, some, my dad and sisters, they are. They live here in Miami. Uh, but, you know, my mom, my grandma, almost everybody else is still there. Okay. So as, as you travel around and speak to college students on campuses and various locations, what is your response to uh, young people or, or really any American who might say, well, but, you know, what happened in Venezuela isn't representative of, of socialism in, in its pure form? It, you can't really claim that that's socialism. What do you say to that? Well, I believe that what's going on in Venezuela is the the, the, the most uh, pure version of socialism. We have, uh, well, probably surpassed by Cuba, of course, but in our Western Hemisphere, I don't think we have seen a better example of socialism than the one we saw in Venezuela. Like Hugo Chavez literally confiscated thousands of private industries within Venezuela. Uh, he confiscated, uh, he, well, even before Hugo Chavez, we nationalized our oil industry. It is almost completely operated by the state. And you have to understand that more than 90% of our revenues as a country come from the oil industry. So. The government was already controlling more than 90% of all of our, uh, 
um, you know, a revenue, right, as a nation. So, yes, Venezuela is a really good example of, of socialism and, and, and it is a really good example to explain why socialism actually uh, doesn't work, right? And a lot of people like to talk about, uh, I don't know, Norway or Sweden, but these are not actual actual examples of socialism. Actually, you have uh, free market principles operating operating in, in, in the economies of all of these great countries. Even they they actually have uh, sometimes freer economies than the United States itself, for example, at some at, at some cases, right? So it it is it is not true to say that Venezuela is not uh, a real example of socialism. I'm sorry, but um, Hugo Chavez claimed to be a socialist, and everything he did was inspired by by the Marxist uh, doctrine, and and now we're paying the consequences. What is the end goal of socialism? Well, that depends on who you ask. Uh, a lot of people who actually believe in this doctrine might say that, you know, they want to create a much uh, equalitarian society. But I, I am not entirely convinced that people that, especially politicians that promote this doctrine, actually believe in this. I believe that many of these people really, what they really want to is to control society, to uh, gain unlimited power, and, and to you know, to gain just a status and position. I believe this is all they want. Because at least, look, in Venezuela, do you, do you believe that this chaos was like because of failure, because they didn't know what they were doing? I don't think you can, you, how, how you manage to fail that constantly every single year and, and, and get these horrible results and not, at some point, if you if you really have good intentions, at some point you might say like, hey, we, I think we're doing something wrong. We better change this or that. But no, they just went further into the system. Uh, so I think their goals was actually to make us poorer so they can control our, control society easier. For example, uh, in the year 2017, we had this problem because uh, we were you know, inviting society to join protesters, to join the demonstrations. But the problem is like majority of Venezuelans were so miserable, so poor that they they couldn't afford to spend a single day in you know going into a demonstration against the government or 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 doing any kind of activism because they needed to spend that day doing a huge line to get a, a I don't know a piece of of bread or or sometimes if the regime finds out that you are supporting demonstrations they are going to stop delivering I don't know some medicine or something that you. I mean, I mean, they make you dependent on government so you can, uh, they can control you. So, and 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 I feel like this was the end goal of 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 Maduro and Hugo Chavez at the end. They they wanted to control us uh, in a in in the easiest way possible. And do you ever worry that what you saw happen so rapidly in Venezuela could happen in other Western countries, even in the United States? Yeah, this is a, this is what I talk about, in, you know, in these presentations that I'm that I'm giving. Uh, it's not like I feel like uh, the United States is condemned to be exactly like Venezuela, but I do see a lot of similarities. Uh, the, the the biggest one I I find is uh, uh, you know the the levels of spending here in America and how hard it is for for this country to actually try to. Uh, bring back uh, 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 fiscal responsibility, right? To, to try to eventually balance the budget. I feel in Venezuela, we struggle a lot uh, with with this same issue, especially during 75. 
you know, in 75, this is when the whole industry was nationalized. Venezuela started to receive a bunch of new resources. I mean, the government started to receive a bunch of new resources because of the nationalization. And they started to, to spend like crazy, creating social social programs, subsidies, all kind of different stuff. Free health, free college for everybody, healthcare free for everybody. I mean, they really start at some point, Venezuela was called uh, Venezuela Saudi for all of the revenue and all of the... the, the, the um, the expenses that we were having during this time, right? And well, during these five years, uh, 75 until the 80s, Venezuelans were used to this idea of living out of government assisting assistance. And but then when we, we started to see a decline in the oil prices, and this is when our problems began because the government didn't find a way to stop spending as much as they were used to. And they started to print money out of nowhere, borrow more money out of the international market, raise taxes. So the, the, the vibrant Venezuela economy that we used to have basically came to an, to an end and started to decline during the 80s. So again, what we're seeing right now in Venezuela is just a continuation process from the 80s until, until today, because we never find a way to actually say we cannot afford this, this living anymore because it was politically not viable to just uh, cut spending. Actually, at some point in 89, Carlos Andres Perez, you know, a president of Venezuela, he did try to make some reforms that were actually pointing in the good direction. He tried to uh, cut a lot of the subsidies and reduce a lot of the social programs, but the backlash from the population was so big that thousands of Venezuelans went to the street to protest, to rally against the government, to loot private businesses. The chaos was so big that even the police was participating with the looters. So the government was forced to send military forces and uh, a lot of people died. It was a really horrible scenario. And uh, again, this is all because people really got used to this idea of, you know, just extending the hand and receiving something out of government, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I'm fearful that something like that might be already happening here. You know, all of this, uh, you know, we, we, we hear a lot of Republicans complaining about the levels of spending and the deficit, and that's okay. But whenever they reach power, they realize that, well, it is not that simple to just start cutting things here and there, right? Because when if they when they control the federal government, the spending keeps rising, the deficit keeps rising. So I don't know. I, I I'm 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 fearful that we might have be already in that point where this is just a, a a snowball that we can no longer stop. And when when is going to be the end, right? Yeah. Mm. What do you think of President Joe Biden's approach to the Maduro regime? Well, I'm 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 uh, I'm extremely worried about that situation. You know, Venezuela's war really hopeful about seeing uh, some sort of liberation process under the Trump administration, uh, all of the sanctions we saw, all of the diplomatic pressure we saw. Actually, it did some minor, we saw some minor results. Uh, some members of the regime abandoned Maduro, some members of the military also abandoned Maduro. Of course, it was not near enough, but we were experiencing changes, change, some kind of changes within Venezuela. But now, it feels like all of this uh, hard rhetoric against the dictatorship in Venezuela is now completely gone. Uh, we don't see the same, um, uh, you know, pressure uh, that we were seeing before under the Trump administration. And now all of these uh, talks that we're seeing between Washington and Caracas to try to lift, uh, lift uh, sanctions against the Venezuelan industry is something that completely, if that ever happens, 
my, my heart is going to be broken because I know that we're not we're we're not going to get rid of Maduro anytime soon if without American support and if Maduro start to receive uh, to re to re if he start to receiving you know revenue coming from these oil industries he's he's going to be again stronger than ever and uh, this money is not going to go to I don't know to regular Venezuelans to help them improve their ordinary life this is just going to go to the military to acquire new equipment to make it easier to repress society even further right so uh, I'm deeply concerned uh, I, I hope this uh, talks I mean I, I, I hope that we don't see any kind of new deal new deal within the American states and the Venezuelan dictatorship because I feel that that's going to be the end for for our cause and and you know, my dream is to return to Venezuela, even though I love America, I love all of the experiences I have in right, right here in this beautiful country. I don't I don't feel yet like this is actually my home. My home is still there in Venezuela and I want to be able to eventually return. And I don't feel like we're I'm, I'm heading to, to a situation where that's going to be possible with this new with this uh, new administration. Right. Hmm. How can we follow your work, Jorge? You are on the forefront of this issue, and we want to keep up with what you're doing. Well, yeah, uh, you can all you can always follow me on social media. Uh, that's going to be at Jorge Galicia ninety five on Twitter and Instagram. And um, and listen, if you if you have a, a request, if you are in need of some uh, a speaker to speak about these very same issues, you know, I'm available. I, uh, this is my work with uh, the Fund for American Studies. They are going to send me whenever uh, I'm requested, basically for free. Uh, they're going to uh, cover all of the expenses of my travel and, 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 and fees or whatever. And, uh, and all you need to do is find me an, an audience and a good place to speak and a projector, stuff like this. And that's going to be... It. So I'm more than happy to contribute with a um, debate whenever you need me. Of course, I I I usually sp speak at colleges, but I could speak at anywhere well where I'm, this kind of message is needed. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thank you so much for your time. We truly appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Virginia. It was an honor. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. As always, you can find the Daily Signal podcast on your listening app of choice. That's including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and spread the word. Encourage others to subscribe. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Doug Blair. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.